Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Hello, everyone, and Merry Christmas to you all. This is the week of Christmas. Really excited for everything that our family has going on and celebrating the birth of Christ. And I trust that you all are doing that as well. And today I just want to kind of summarize and conclude our series that we've had talking about critical race theory. And I would want to conclude today with a topic that's near and dear to my heart on how to talk to people about critical race theory. Now, one of the motivations behind this episode is because since I've been doing some reading research and presentations on this issue, one of the most common questions I get from people is, well, how do I talk to my friends about this? Or how do I talk to my kids about this or my grandkids? In fact, I had one lady tell me, she said, listen, I have a 16-year-old granddaughter. I try to talk to her about these things. And she says, you are an old person who has fully embraced your white privilege, and I'm not going to listen to you on this issue. Now, that's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. So what kind of wisdom can we glean from the appropriate way to have conversations about these issues. So we're going to talk just a little bit about how I think that these conversations should be had. And I would just say as an introduction to this, uh, one of the most important things for families, for churches to do is to actually be having the conversations. I think it's the worst idea in the world to just say, okay, we're not going to touch that. It's a, it's a powder keg or we're not going to spend our time on that. We're going to, we're going to focus on other issues instead, maybe more important issues. Well, what you're doing then is you're allowing people to be influenced by the world on these issues. I mean, they're getting this from the educational institutions, from the media, from all these. And for you to say as a family or a church, we're not going to talk about these issues at all. That's incredibly dangerous. So yes, the church needs to be focused on preaching the word, but there also needs to be as part of the core discipleship within the church, actual steps being taken by the leadership, by those in the assembly to help one another think through these important issues because we're faced with it. And this is real life Christianity is how do we think about these things? How do we talk about these things? And if the church doesn't talk about it, if families don't talk about it, then all that's left is to see what the world is offering on that. And that's if that's the only alternative way of thinking and talking about things, then it's so much easier to buy into that. So overall, the big foundational starting point is these are conversations that need to be had on every level, from kids to old people. Everybody needs to be having these conversations, and we're all involved in this as a church, as believers, and even as society to a larger degree. So how are we going to talk about this? So I think the starting point has to be Paul's admonition to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, where He's talking to Timothy about how to engage with those who are in disagreement, the opponents of the church. And he says to them, or to Timothy about them, he says, the Lord's servant, and this is verse 24 and 25, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, kind to everyone, able to teach 
patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, yes, but notice the prepositional modifier there, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So in other words, Paul is, is admonishing Timothy here saying, yes, you need to be engaged in this struggle. You need to be correcting your opponents, absolutely, but you need to be kind to everyone. And you also need to be doing all of this work in a spirit of gentleness. And so this has to be the foundational starting point. Uh, it's unfortunately in our day and age, uh, there is a lot being talked about with regard to emotion and anger and zeal and some of the just the really important attributes of kindness and gentleness are done away with. Now, that doesn't mean dispensing with the truth. We'll talk about that. But this ought to be a foundational marker for the church is having this gentleness bathing the discussions, as it were. Uh, in other words, you should, you shouldn't lose control of your temper. You shouldn't, uh, raise your voice unnecessarily. We'll talk about that as well. And this should be a really important aspect of Christianity. Now, the reason it's also even more important in our day and age is because it, it's really a, well, let's put it this way. The critical race theory, and we could talk about this with regard to other critical theories as well, but, I'm specifically talking about critical race theory because that's what we've been talking about uh, on the podcast. But this could apply to talking about really any deviant uh, logical system. When it's illogical, um, when it doesn't stand the scrutiny of objective fact-based testing, then the only thing left that you really have is emotionalism. So it's no surprise that many people who hold, hold to critical race theory the way that they promote their viewpoint is through emotion and through uh, passionate argumentation. In fact, I remember watching a couple of videos over the summer where you had these college-age uh, individuals, these university graduates, who were arguing that these police officers were racist. And the police officer was – it was – actually such a, a revealing example because the police officer, you know, was very kind, very gentle. And he's, and he was saying, how could I be racist when my wife is black and I have three black children? And the, they, the, the university graduates, these, these people who are so educated, if you want to say it that way, they just kept yelling, no, you're racist. You're racist. You don't understand what racism is. You are racist, blah, blah, blah. Just shouting at him saying that that's what it was as if the, the loudness of their voice, the anger and the passion uh, was somehow contributing to the uh, overwhelming nature of their argument. Now, it's imperative for Christians to be the counterexample to that where we are in kindness, we are logical, we are holding to the truth, because that's the foundation. And so that should be how we win any argument. Uh, but this is a really important example of that because society is so emotional about the issues of race and racism. And a lot of times they, they say something is true. They speak it passionately, emotionally, and it's just simply not true. So the key to this, uh, to any discussion is to argue in sincerity, respect, and love. And I will say people can tell when you're doing that. And 
if somebody's actually engaging in a real conversation with you with a with a back and forth dialogue they are really going to mark a difference in you in how you are respectful you do listen when they're when they're saying things you are trying to engage and address the issues in a respectful way people people really do see that if they are actually trying to discern things now there is a difference obviously with people who are not interested in having those conversations. And that kind of leads to the next point. So the first point would be that you really need to have this spirit of gentleness and love, which Paul talks about. That That is regardless of whatever context you're in, whether it be family members, whether it be uh, talking to a stranger, all of that needs to be bathed in gentleness. But the second major consideration would be that we need to take the context uh, we need to, the context needs to figure into how we engage in these conversations. So, for example, there are multiple ways that we could spell this out, but the context of maybe even answering the question, am I ever going to see this person again? Now, that's not an excuse to be mean, right? We just talked about how gentleness is so important, but we, if we are never going to see this person again, let's say we're sitting next to them on a plane or something like that and we're engaging on these issues for some reason, um, well, is it, is it something that you would want to really press, uh, these issues? Or if it's an unbeliever, maybe you would, uh, forego trying to win them over on critical race theory, uh, and just focus on the gospel and say, you know what? Like, uh, let's, I have another question and, and work it into a gospel centered conversation. I'm not saying they're unrelated, but, but ultimately, if you convince somebody that, that you're not a racist or that critical race theory is wrong, that may be a small victory. But if the person winds up in hell, it's not much of a victory, right? And so I would say having that context in mind of, am I ever going to see this person again? Are they a believer or are they unbeliever? If they were a believer, the context would be different because then it's more of a confrontation over sin. If it's an unbeliever, the focus ought to be, how do I turn this to recognition of sin and the need for a savior and and working through those scenarios? So obviously the context is going to be different. And if I'm convinced that somebody is an unbeliever, I'm going to be less likely to actually engage them on this issue unless it is for an official purpose, uh, the purpose of other people who are listening and trying to evaluate some sort of debate perhaps or something like that to try to benefit others. But I'm not going to try to argue an unbeliever out of this just out of hand. Uh, I mean, there would be some scenarios I'm sure where that could take place, but, but ultimately there's going to be a a need for unbelievers to be saved. And so just taking those things into consideration is helpful. Uh, but what about if this, if this was a believer and, you know, you're not going to see them again? Well, maybe you, you're going to be a little more forward and talking about it, just saying like, listen, I don't know, you know, who you're going to go back and what kind of church you're a part of, but this is, this is, these are the issues that I see with critical race theory and, and, you know, just being very forward and, and blunt in a kind way, hopefully, Lord willing, but but just being forward versus let's say it's somebody in your church who you see regularly and and you can actually have a prolonged conversation with them and you can you can talk about some of the issues and say, hey, let's get lunch this week and finish the conversation. Well, you don't have to, you know, throw everything out on the table then. You know, I'm just reminded of, uh, you know, sometimes people will ask about an issue and I, I'm just thinking, wow, there is like 
three hours of things that I could tell you with regard to this issue, but obviously that's not expedient and that doesn't work. So let me tell you just like something briefly now and then let's let's have lunch or or here's some resources you can read that can have more on this issue. So knowing whether or not this is going to be an ongoing conversation, what kind of context it is, that kind of helps you understand uh, how to engage that individual. The other thing I would say on that is if this person is antagonistic, uh, let's say you do have somebody who's uh, hopefully this would normally be unbelievers, but, but even some believers would actually be very antagonistic and not receptive to having a conversation. They, they, they will engage only in a way to prop themselves up or to promote things. And so having a conversation with those individuals who are not actually interested in learning or actually being convinced of anything, in that case, it's not really worth your time to argue with that individual. And so there's wisdom involving, say, you know, uh, uh, to use Jesus's analogy, you're wiping the dust off your feet. There are individuals who it is inappropriate to spend a significant amount of time with them arguing about these issues. Now, I would say an exception to that would be if there is an opportunity to argue for the sake of the listeners. So sometimes I will engage in, in a, in a, unprofitable argument where the individual is not, is not even close to considering my viewpoint as being, you know, valid or, uh, acceptable in any stretch of the imagination, but I will do it for the sake of those who are listening. So I will engage that individual to try to show everybody else how illogical he is and how inappropriate the reasoning that is being used is, uh, with regard to the argument and all of that. So I'll do that for the sake of the listeners in order that they might not think these listeners, they, they might not think, Oh, wow, there's no, there's no good comeback to those arguments or something like that. Uh, and that's, that's really, if you think about like social media, very few that, I mean, there are probably like zero, 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 one, uh, percent chance of convincing somebody on social media to retract their post or to go against the position that they've uh, originally come out with. That just never happens. Social media is the worst with regard to that. But there are sometimes to engage on social media in order that the other people who are reading those posts would see, oh, there are actually good responses to this. And that is probably the, the, best reason that someone would ever want to actually quote unquote argue on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But that's normally not the best uh, place for it. But I would say that when you, when utilizing social media and things like that, uh, very rare that, that anything profitable could come out of a debate on social media, but that would probably be the main exception in my mind as I, as I look through those things um, where the listeners are going to be able to see, hey, you know what, there are actual valid alternatives or different ways of looking at that. Usually just because of pride and arrogance and things like that, if somebody posts something uh, and they state it authoritatively, uh, that means that they're uh, that's what they're holding to. And any challenge to that, they will gladly double down on it just because social media tends to invite that kind of uh, operation. Not supposed to be the case for Christians that way, but still that is most often how it works even in Christian circles. So understanding the context is very key. Working through those issues, I think, is is helpful. Now, when we think about 
how specifically a Christian should argue, I would just summarize it this way. The Christian needs to argue with facts and truth. Facts and truth. That needs to be the core component of any Christian argument. That includes, and I would say makes primary scripture, because scripture is the pinnacle of truth, being God's revelation, his special revelation to mankind. And so that ought to be, you know, unashamedly on the, on the front of every single argument that the Christian is giving. Absolutely. But there are other elements of facts and truth, statistics, analyses that the Christian can and should offer. Now, what that is in contrast to, especially with regard to critical race theory, would be emotional arguments or um, arguments from experience. And the reason those are dangerous are because those are non-objective and very subjective. Uh, and I've written a post about this on the blog. If you're interested, it's entitled A Christian Critique of Experience. And, uh, it was, it was well received when I wrote it. And I assume it remains well received from people who, who read it. But I just go through some of the scriptural principles of understanding why experience is so dangerous. And yet it's ironic that culture is holding up experience as the primary means of interpretation. Because experience can be uh, so influenced by presuppositions, it can be influenced by our desires. Uh, for example, I, I can think off the, off the top of my head of multiple uh, young men who I have talked to in my life, and they are uh, really infatuated with a young girl. Uh, not the same girl, obviously. So these are different independent examples, but it's funny because they will interpret the, what the girl does in light of their own feelings. So because they like this girl, whenever she, you know, like looks at them or whenever she has a conversation with them, they say, Oh, I think, you know, like she might be into me or, you know, I think she really likes me. Well, I understand that that's, that is not an objective, uh, reality, right? She may be, that may be the case, right? But the whole point, and I'm not saying that, that they're incorrect or that they are correct. All I'm saying is that there are sometimes that they are incorrect and there are sometimes that they are correct, but their own desire is that that be correct. And so that's what influences them. Or, uh, to, to put it, um, even in a more serious example, I remember reading an argument this summer when the discussion of racism and systemic racism was taking place. I remember reading an article by a very well-known individual and he was, he, he has adopted a, a black, uh, young daughter and he was just talking about his experience and how, uh, he, he was saying how his daughter has, has experienced systemic racism at the hands of white people. And, and so he was giving an example of his daughter, who I think at the time was about six or seven years old, I think, if I remember correctly. And she was swimming in the community pool. And so remember, this is a black daughter adopted by white parents. She's swimming in the community pool and the lifeguards stopped her. They, they got her out of the pool and, and asked her, where are your parents? And so he was livid. And he was saying, listen, none of the other white kids got stopped um, asking, where are your parents? And so he said, this is a clear example of racism. You know, white people aren't being treated this way. This, this black girl is being treated this way. Now, could this be racism? 
Sure. I mean, it definitely could be. I mean, he doesn't give us any other details. He just gives us those details and says this is an example of racism. So it's possible that those life lifeguards hate black people and they really want to make life miserable for this black girl. It's it's very possible. Um, unlikely, but possible. But because this individual kind of wants this to be the case, this is how he argues for racism. But and, and again, this is in a very uh, well-known, uh, this is a well-known author in a well-known, um, uh, newspaper where, where this was being argued. And I read that story and I remember thinking to myself, wow, that is, if that's the best example he has of like racism and systemic racism, like, I'm sorry. Like, I just don't see that because when he's arguing about that, my first thought, because I was actually trained as a lifeguard, um, and so I was just, I could easily imagine a, this scenario where you see a black girl swimming in the pool, a six or seven year old black girl, and you do not see any black parents around. Now, if you don't know who this individual is and you don't know that she's adopted, what is the logical conclusion there? Oh, this little girl is here without her parents. So if she drowns or even if she slips on the pool and gets hurt, what does that, what, what is that literally going to do for our pool? Oh, you didn't bother checking to see if her parents were around. Like you just let kids swim unsupervised against the rules. Well, that is a major lawsuit waiting to happen. Not to mention just really uh, foolish to let kids swim without adult supervision anyway. Uh, kids aren't usually champion swimmers at that age. And so I was just thinking, wow, you know, like that's probably smart of the lifeguards to check on. So all, all I'm saying is that that's a much more logical scenario in my mind than just assuming that they're picking her out because she's black. Uh, and obviously because she's adopted, that's, uh, that brings a complicating factor. You can't assume that she's adopted. So all, all I say is that's another example of where people use these, uh, experiential argumentations and they, they put it forward as being absolute proof of racism. And it could, it could be an example of racism. There, there are real racist events that take place. Uh, where white people mistreat black people because they hate them. And there are also plenty plenty of examples where black people mistreat white people because they hate them. And both of those are racist and wrong according to a biblical definition. But where Christians need to step in and and um, engage on the level of argumentation is with truth and say, listen, we can, we can agree that if we have objective truth, uh, that this needs to be the standard that, yes, if this person is operating out of hatred because of this person's skin color, yes, that is wrong and we need to take action against that. But if there's no proof of that, that would be foolish to assume that this is a racist encounter. There are other conceivable explanations. And then we can use statistics. Uh, obviously the big, uh, the big stories that ran over the summer were the ideas of police shootings and, you know, the story that was being painted in the media was, you know, you have all of, uh, you know, black people being mowed down by police. And that was often the story that was, that was given. Well, if you look at the statistics about police shootings and how many, uh, black people are involved in police shootings and white people involved, you, it's actually a disparity that's, that's pro black individuals, uh, um, with regard to the statistics themselves. And of course, that's, that's not, uh, normally publicized. But that has been the case over the last couple of years. And so you, you use that 
argumentation and what the counter to that is in critical race theory is that, oh, well, the way that those statistics are recorded or even using logic or evidence is, is actually a evidence of your racism because you're a part of a racist system. So remember in critical race theory, like we were talking about, the assumption is that the system is racist. So if you use anything that the system allows, like logic, reasoning, et cetera, you're actually participating in racism. Now, still, even though that's going to be the comeback for using uh, statistics, objective reality, and things like that, well, you you still need to do that because that's the that's the Christian obligation to love truth, to promote truth, and ultimately truth wins out all the time uh, over time. Uh, it's just sometimes it takes a long time for the truth to actually win out because people are very obstinate. That's that's very true. Uh, and that doesn't mean that certain people are ever going to be convinced of the truth. Uh, they may double down in their deception, but, but ultimately that's not up to us to decide that the, the thing I always tell people is that it's not up to you to win the argument. It's up to you to just be faithful because we understand scripturally that mankind dece- is deceived. Their hearts are wicked. And so ultimately you can't, you can't break, uh, break down this hard heart. Only God can do that. And so just like in, in understanding how salvation works is you can't ever save somebody. You present the truth and the Holy Spirit works in life. Well, so too in, in arguments of this nature, you just present the truth. You do it in a loving way. You stick with the, with the Bible and objective truth, uh, understanding that these are, these are the means God uses to, to break these barriers and God will, God will do his good pleasure with regard to that. And so that's, that's our Christian obligation. So stick with the facts, stick with the truth. Uh, and I would say, I, I mean, I, I don't want to go back on what I said with, with not using experience, but experience is a valid means of discussion. But the prior examples that I were, was giving is just showing that, that it can often be misinterpreted. So there are times when I will use my own experience or others experience as valid forms of argumentation. But I always try to at least remember to give the clarification that this isn't a, this isn't a slam dunk form of argumentation because it's just one, it's just an experience and experience can be misinterpreted. It can be misremembered, all these things. And so we can use experience, uh, as argumentation as part of the discussion. And so can those who would argue against, uh, the Bible, but with the qualifications that experience is not the best form of argumentation because of the uh, caveats that we talked about. Now, to conclude, I just want to give a couple practical ideas in, in having these conversations because what about uh, a lot of people who engage in, in these specific conversations that deal with critical race theory will simply say something like, you're white, you have your white privilege, and so you're so biased you can't even, you can't even see the truth. That's the assumption. And so what I like to do, um, to try to show their own hypocrisy is I will suggest that they read or listen to my black friends or, uh, certain black commentators or, uh, especially black, uh, Christians or preachers that, that are speaking the truth in love. You know, I, I, and I really push this because the whole assumption is you're white and you are blind. And so what about, what about my black 
teachers? What about my black friends? What about Vody Bauckham? What, what about all these, these, uh, what about, uh, Daryl Harris, Harrelson and Virgil Walker, the guys from the Just Thinking podcast? These guys are black and they are saying the exact same thing I am saying. In fact, I, I owe a lot of my observations and, uh, gleanings from them. So are, are they blind? Are you nullifying their black experience? Because if, if experience like, uh, racism and whatever is, is, uh, oppression is being, um, put upon people because of their color. And this is, uh, ubiquitous across the color spectrum. So all black people are fitting into these categories and all white people are beneficiaries of white supremacy. Why is it that these black individuals are not buying into that? Why are, why are they saying the exact same thing I'm saying? And speaking against critical race theory. And if a lot of times, uh, people won't have a good answer to that. They will simply say, well, they've bought into the racism, uh, of white people. They're, they're sellouts or something like that. But really, I mean, that's such an illogical, you can't just say because somebody disagrees. And that's why when we were talking about critical race theory, I was talking about how one of the major dangers of this is that critical race theory really promotes group identity instead of individuality. The individual is dead. And you are only allowed to agree with the group. And so when we think about this, uh, you know, whether it's be, and I, I'm thinking specifically of, you know, the situation of that, uh, that, uh, lady that was talking to me about her 16 year old granddaughter and just how, you know, I don't want to listen to you because you just have bought into your white privilege. Well, what I would encourage somebody in that situation to say is, well, what if, what if you listen to these black people talk about this? Are you willing to consider a black voice on racial oppression? And, you know, if somebody says, no, I will not listen to it. Well, are you racist then? Are you not going to listen to this person because they're black? I mean, that's so inconsistent that you would say, you know, it's racist to say things, uh, you know, to buy into this viewpoint, but I'm not going to listen to a black person say the same thing. Well, it, you can see that there's, uh, there's a tremendous uh, illogicality to that. And so I think that that's, that's often uh, at least a small way to kind of show people that. And sometimes, like I said, though, you're not going to, you're not in, in your own way going to convince somebody of this. This is something the Holy Spirit has to do in their lives, but it's at least a, a step in that direction. And then number two, I would say ask them, these individuals who are promoting this critical race theory and buying into it, ask them what it would take to disprove the idea to them or ask them how they would know that critical race theory was incorrect. In other words, uh, the whole, the whole point is what evidence would you need to show you that this is wrong? And if they can't think of anything, then I would push on that and say, well, listen, if you are believing something that can't be disproven, like if you are, if you are buying into a narrative that, that, no matter what the facts say, no matter what the evidence says, there's nothing that can convince you otherwise. That is, I mean, you, you've just given up objectivity. You've given up logical thinking. You, you are literally a lemming at that point. And so that is, uh, completely ridiculous, honestly. And anybody who would argue that way is rather silly. So it's important to, to kind of push a little bit on that and just, just in a kind way, just ask, well, what would it take? Like, what, what is it that convinces you of this? And what would it take to, you know, not convince you of this? I, I remember talking to one individual and he, and he said, you know, all my black friends, uh, support this. 
like all my black friends say that say that they do experience racism and that this is like a, a very real issue systemically and all that and whatnot. And I remember um, <laughs> just asking him, well, what about all my black friends? I was like, are you dis- discounting their testimony? Like wh- which ones are we going to believe your black friends or my black friends that this is an issue? Um, and you know, there's no, there's no real response to that. There can't be because once you start uh, going down a road where it's all experience oriented and things like that. It's, it's impossible to disprove a theory that way. And so ultimately this would be the third, uh, practical idea in talking to people about this is just really encourage them to truly educate themselves with the truth. I mean, this is in any issue, you just have to encourage education. And I mean real education. I don't mean like look online and try to find some, some hot memes or something like that. I mean, like, hey, read a book, listen to some great podcasts, you know, do, do the legwork. I mean, these are issues. I mean, as Christians, especially, we are, we are warriors of the mind, uh, in the sense that we are doing battle in the words of Paul against, uh, the, the ideas of this world. Um, this is, uh, the call to set our mind on things above and not on things on the earth. And, and when we're, when we're not being taken captive in the words of Paul to the Corinthians by these uh, deceitful ideas and things like that, this is, takes hard work, takes hard work as Christians. And so I would encourage every believer, you know, some people say, I don't like to read. Well, listen to things. And some people say, well, I don't have time to listen to, to things. You don't have time to, to engage uh, something's wrong with your life if you do not have time to actually engage in the things that matter in life. Uh, and so I would, I would just encourage on a very practical level. There is in today's day and age with all the technology, there are so many ways to be involved in this and, and to really promote learning about it. So, so I just, as we think about how to talk to people about these issues, I would, I would go back, uh, and say, you know, everything should be done in a spirit of gentleness. We need to take the, the context into consideration. The truth and the facts need to be always present. That's, that's where a believer lives, breathes and dies, uh, through, through those elements. And then just practically just really try to, uh, in addressing these people in love, just really point out the inconsistencies and encourage them to, uh, educate themselves. I mean, this is, we're, we're not, uh, the communist party. I mean, we, we want people to be educated because we know the truth is on the side of scripture. And so it's, it's kind of ironic that, that, uh, the, the censorship and all of the, the ideas of hate speech, all of those go one way. And they're trying to suppress alternative viewpoints where the Christians say, no, like, we're not scared of anything. There's nothing that's going to come out that's going to, uh, dis- dissuade people from the truth. If they are examining the truth, if, if that's, if we are taking everything into consideration, we're confident that that's, uh, the truth ultimately wins out. And so ultimately that should govern our, our ideologies and, and, um, soft arguments with individuals. So that was a little longer than I wanted to. I wanted it to be brief, but, uh, went a little longer. So I apologize for that, but I hope it is helpful. I know many of you are home for the holidays and celebrating with loved ones. I'm sure there are going to be many interesting and good conversations. Hopefully if there are any difficult conversations, this might help put things into perspective and help alleviate some of the stress with regard to that. 
You can always reach out to me through the contact form at the website or look at shepherds.edu to see the seminary. The spring semester is fast approaching, going to begin the end of January, so you can look at the course catalog and the courses coming up uh, and maybe see something you can audit or take for credit. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.